Well, good morning, everybody. I'm really glad to see you all here, and not just because it is um, that loathsome day that is the beginning of daylight saving time. Um, nothing, nothing will quite uh, test our sanctification like the day when we lose an hour's sleep, especially if we've got young kids. So, um, Tars, especially, glad you're here. <laughs> But um, I, but so for those who are here and who don't know me, my name is Aaron. Uh, I am one of our community group leaders, longtime member here at at Refuge. Um, today we are going to be uh, continuing our study of the book of James with James chapter two, verses one through thirteen. Uh, but before we get into our text this morning, uh, let's remember where these verses, these 13 verses that we're going to be covering today, uh, flow from. And uh, as I was preparing, it was really tempting to go back and actually reread the entirety of chapter one, but we don't have about two hours uh, together today. Um, I don't think uh, our, any of our kids could handle it. Um, so for our purposes this morning, let's just focus real quick on uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which uh, Dustin so excellently uh, taught through last week. These verses say, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so as those of us who were present last week learned, these verses represent a recurring theme through the majority of the book of James. That, and that theme is that our profession of faith and our practice of faith should be consistent. Or as Dustin put it last week, our walk has to match our talk and our talk has to match our walk. And as we get into chapter 2, James illustrates this key theme of our profession and practice of faith being consistent. And he does so by raising a serious issue, uh, one that is still a concern for the church today. Discrimination within the Christian community. And so keep that in mind as we, as we read these verses together. So here is James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith uh, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring or dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that, has, that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism and you, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you are a lawbreaker. Um, and so he, and I'm going to save the last two verses for the very end, but um, in this very substantial passage this morning, we're going to see two things happening throughout, two truths that are not just found here, um, but are actually found throughout the whole of Scripture. And the first we find from the first seven verses, which is that discrimination is always wrong, especially within the church. And second, that the gospel calls us to love all, regardless of status, as we would ourselves. So let's pray real quick, and then we'll get into this. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it speaks to us, that it is living and active. Thank you that your spirit works in us uh, as we read your word to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to grow us more in Christ-likeness. Help us all today to hear from your word with open hearts, to hear what you have to say to us. Help me to speak truthfully and clearly and helpfully today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in those first four verses, James sets up the problem among believers, that there's favoritism or partiality, um, specifically favoritism of the wealthy at the expense of the poor being shown in this church. Uh, he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So in this, what, he, what James is talking about is he's talking about how the wealthy were being given preferred treatment. They're being offered seats of honor while the poor were told to sit in places of subservience on the floor by a footstool or off in a corner where they can't even be seen. And this is a serious problem on a number of fronts particularly dealing with that word favoritism, which is how the CSB uses it, um, or the ESV, for those of you who are, are reading that translation, it uses the word partiality. These are related words, of course, that describe giving preferential treatment to one person over another. In this case, that preference being because of their social status and their wealth, because of their appearance of it. But there's another word that actually some translators have used to drive home the seriousness of this issue, the vileness of favoritism or partiality. And that word is prejudice. Prejudice is actually, in many ways, the best word to describe the sort of corruption, the injustice that this practice represents. This sort of evil that is entirely incompatible with a genuine faith in Christ. It's a practice that runs contrary to God's will and his own actions, which James himself tells us in verses 5 through 7. Listen to these. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you've dishonored the poor. 
don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So the problem of discrimination isn't just a problem, James says. James actually calls it something much more severe. He calls it blasphemy, which means to show contempt toward God in our words or our actions. And that should call us back again to the language of chapter 1, where James warned us about putting away all filthiness, that those who say that they're religious and can't control their tongues are deceiving themselves, that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But this isn't a new problem that James was addressing. It's one that had been a a concern for the Lord from the very beginning. From the time his people wandered in the wilderness, God had warned against the sin of partiality, against discriminating between the rich and the poor alike. In Leviticus 19.15, for example, he says, Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. And again, in Deuteronomy 1.17, he says, Do not show partiality when deciding a case. Listen to great and small alike. Do not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment belongs to God. And that problem continued through the kingdom of, through the kingdom of Israel, through the divided kingdom, into the church as well. And as we see, and we see that in Acts chapter six, when a different form of partiality was demonstrated, not between rich and poor, but a partiality that hap- occurred because of language. Greek-speaking believers came to the apostles with a complaint that their widows were being neglected while the needs of the Hebrew-speaking widows were being met during the daily food distributions. And it continued in the form of the early debates among Jewish and Gentile believers over the need for circumcision and obedience to dietary uh, laws and and ceremonial law. We see that continue on all the way through Acts and the epistles. Um, That temptation to show partiality is also seen among the Gentile believers themselves as Paul challenged these new Christians to no longer display their status in order to gain preferential treatment. And that's something that we see in 1 Corinthians. Um, And it continued to plague the church all throughout history, through the medieval era and beyond, in times when money and influence were used to purchase power, resulting in often entirely unqualified and in at least a few occasions entirely unbelieving people being placed in positions of authority. So again, it's not a new problem in James's, in James's day, and it's not a new problem in our day, because we do have to recognize that this temptation toward partiality does continue today as well. Now, as a community, as, as Refuge Church, we are blessed that this does not appear to be a visible, overt issue among us. But even though it doesn't appear to be an issue for us, that doesn't mean it's not possible for it to become one in the future. None of us are immune from falling into this trap, falling into this sin of partiality. Um, And because, honestly, we're all surrounded by it. Even if it's not here, we're surrounded by it in our our workplaces, in our schools, uh, you name it. 
Perhaps we've seen it when, when, a, when someone that we work with, uh, a coworker, perhaps even us, is playing office politics, acting in ways that lack integrity in order to get ahead. Maybe we've been tempted toward it when we play the comparison game between ourselves and our neighbors. We might even actually do it to ourselves, convincing ourselves that we have little to offer our community because of our background, because of our experience, because of our economic status, or because of even the shakiness of our practice of our spiritual disciplines. And part of what growing in maturity means is recognizing that we're all capable of sinning in this way. Not a single one of us is immune from the temptation to show favoritism in some way or another. But if we want to become mature in the way that God calls us to, in the way that James calls us to in his letter, we need to see the shallowness of this kind of thinking for what it is. Partiality, discrimination is always wrong, especially in the church. And it's wrong because it's a poor substitute, a cheap imitation for the reality of the gospel. And not simply a poor substitute. Discrimination, prejudice, partiality, favoritism, whatever other name you want to use for it. It's an anti-gospel that robs people of dignity, value, and respect. Remember what James wrote, that God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom promised to those who love him. We're not to be consumed with what is going to disappear, what can fade away uh, with what it, uh, as easily as the sun withers the grass. So what would we be doing differently? What would we be doing if we were to show favoritism toward the wealthy? What would, that look, what would that mean ultimately? We'd be valuing them over others because of something that doesn't matter. Something that can disappear in an instant. Something that, honestly, all of us have experienced disappear in an instant um, in recent years. But the gospel demands that we renounce evil in all of its forms to take off our former ways of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, as Ephesians 4, 22 and 23 tell us. And the gospel challenges us to consider others greater than ourselves, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, considering others more important than ourselves, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 3 and 4. And the gospel unites People, regardless of gender, background, nationality, financial status, education, zip code, and any other false divide that we may be tempted to use to discriminate. For those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 27 through 29. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And we could add here, there's no rich or poor, PhD or GED, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. All of us are equal under Christ if we believe in Jesus. 
And for all of us, the gospel is a call to humility in our thinking, to consider our ways, to consider the ways in which we have been tempted to show partiality to one person or to one group of people over another, to turn to God and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where our blind spots are in this area, whether to one person to a group of people, to ourselves. And in a little while, when we take communion, when we, were, when we do so remembering the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us, take some time to consider this. Ask God to reveal these things, to strengthen you where you are tempted, to give you the courage to repent where you may be convicted, and to live in light of the reality that James points us to in the remainder of our passage. That just as discrimination has no place among the believers, that the gospel calls us to love all regardless of status as we would ourselves. Listen, listen at verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed by the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he said, do not commit adultery. Uh, He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. And so as we've already seen, the issue of discrimination or prejudice really is a gospel issue. And because it's a gospel issue, it means that it's not limited to one area of life. It's not just about our relationship between the rich and the poor. It's about our relationship between all people. And so this is why James describes discrimination as a direct violation of the royal law, quoting Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. This royal or perfect law was considered the, the apex, the culmination of all the ethical commands within the Mosaic law, encapsulating God's desire for his people as they would live as citizens of his kingdom. This is why Jesus said that all of the law could be summed up as love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and, to, and, love, um, and love your neighbor as yourself. To show favoritism, then, is to sinfully discriminate between people. And because it is that, it is a rejection of God's law in total. So just as a murderer is said to have violated every point of the law, even if he's never committed adultery... So it is for those who show sinful favoritism. And that's not how God wants his people to live. It's not how we were ever meant to live. Instead, we are to live in light of this call to love our neighbor as ourselves. So where does that start? If we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to know them in a way that goes beyond a superficial wave or a head nod. We need to pursue friendship. And not just friendships with people who are like us, those who are in the same life stage or in the same economic group, the same neighborhood, the same workplace, or or whatever. We should be pursuing friendships with anyone willing to do so. 
And that's actually something that the church offers. We have the ability to, to become friends with people who are like us and unlike us in so many ways. And I love how uh, George uh, Stulek, who uh, wrote a really wonderful, helpful commentary on James, how he describes this. He says in his commentary, loving your neighbor as yourself requires an openness to friendship with any neighbor, regardless of that neighbor's wealth, position, status, influence, race, appearance, attractiveness, dress, abilities, or personality. Um, and that's just good news for me because I'm I'm a weird guy. You guys know that. Um, but every Christian operates in some social group, a school, a neighborhood, a workplace. And most social groups have their social misfits, um, the ones who are looked down upon, ostracized, or neglected. The royal law absolutely prohibits the Christian from joining in the favoritism. The follower of the royal law will reach out to any neighbor. That last line is so powerful. The follower of the royal law will reach out to any neighbor. Not just some neighbors, not just the ones that we like or agree with, any neighbor. That's a powerful calling, a convicting challenge, isn't it? So what would it look like for us to live this way? I mean, perhaps some of us already are, and I'll be honest, I suspect it isn't, uh, that this isn't naturally how any of us operate, though, because it's, it's hard work. Yet God, in his kindness, he's given us so many incredible opportunities to love our neighbors. They're right in front of us if we have eyes to see them. And that's one of the most important reasons that the church exists and why specifically community groups exist in our church. They're a place, they're an opportunity. They're a place for us to put this into practice every single time we get together. As people who uh, do come from different backgrounds are all united in our shared commitment to living out this thing that we call gospel culture, at refuge, living out what we say we believe about God and the gospel together. And it's why our women's ministry and our Thrive groups exist. It's why our men's groups exist and why this, past, this weekend's uh, men's retreat exists as well. All of these things are an opportunity for us to grow together in community, to love our neighbors as ourselves within, within this body. We're trying to develop these kinds of relationships centered on our, commit, our commitment to and our love for Christ in the gospel, where we can put our faith into practice, where, we can walk, where our walk can begin to match our talk and our talk can start to line up with our walk. And so if you're here and you're not in a community group, if refuge is... is uh, where you, where the church you call home, we we want you to be involved in a community group. We have a few of them that are that meet throughout the week that are scattered throughout different areas of the larger Franklin area, um, and so 
check out some information on that. Come and talk to me or one of the elders, one of the, uh, Nathan, who's one of our other community group leaders, Tim over there on the side. We all want to encourage you to be part of community in some way. If you're already in a group, though, take some time this week to consider how your experience is helping you grow in this area and how we can help one another to grow together in loving our neighbors as ourselves in community to a greater degree. Because that's the point. We want to help one another grow into maturity to look a little more like Jesus with every passing day. But this reality doesn't just relate to how we love one another as neighbors within refuge. It extends beyond that. Remember, we should be pursuing uh, an openness that extends to any neighbor of any background. And so this means the people who live next door to us, the people that we work with, the people that we go to school with, the people that we hang out in coffee shops around. It's every area of your life. And so this is actually something that's weighed heavily on me as Emily and I have watched uh, the community that we moved into about a year ago uh, literally being built around us. Um, uh, And now we have new neighbors who are moving in. And so the question I've been wondering has been, how can we be the kind of neighbors God has called us to be? How can we pursue relationships to whatever degree we're able with those who are coming uh, and living just down the street with us? And perhaps you're in a similar situation. Perhaps you want to put this kind of neighbor love into practice and you really don't know where to start. Well, I can't give you a a definitive, here's the secret kind of answer. Here are three things that I've found actually really helpful as we've seen our community out in Chapel Hill um, start to grow up around us. Uh, The first thing is, is to pray. And so as we want to love our neighbors, we should be praying for them. And we should be praying that God would give us the opportunities, that he would give us the wisdom uh, that we need to know how to serve people well. The second is to do this, is to discuss this in your community group and as as a family. So this pursuit isn't a solo activity. Your community group actually can help you to do this. Um, whether it's through encouragement, whether it's through ideas, whether it's through actually engaging with people together. We're all in this together to love our neighbors um, as a community. And third, this one is going to sound silly, but it really is, but it actually has been the most helpful thing that we've found so far. And it's just to go for a walk. That's it. Go for a walk and talk to the people that are around. Just say hi. And I'll admit that's really hard for me because talking takes effort for me because I can, I can go days without saying anything if I really want to. Um, and it's, I'm just that introverted. Guys, um, I'm fooling you all right now. <laughs> but since March of last year, Emily and I have gone on a walk in our subdivision pretty much every day, except for when it's Canada cold. Um, like, 
last night. It was awful. But, um, but because of that, we've had opportunities to talk to our neighbors, to start to get to know them, to learn their names, to learn little bits of, of their lives, and to find ways that we can actually, we can find entry points into friendship. Um, and in a lot of the cases in our neighborhood, it's not, it's, it would be too strong to say that we're friends with most of the people there, but we are friendly with them. And that's a start. That's really all it takes. To be someone's friend, you have to be friendly. Sometimes the best thing that we can do when we're not sure what to do is to just do something. And a walk in your community is a great way to do that. So the gospel calls us to love others regardless of status, regardless of background, regardless of anything as we would ourselves and it doesn't, doesn't just call us to do this. It actually frees us to do so. And this is why I held back verses 12 and 13. Listen to these. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. So as James prepares to transition to another example of how our profession and practice of faith should align, and we'll be looking at that next week, he reminds us of the truth that we are going to be judged by God. Even Christians are going to be judged by God. And the standard by which we judge others will be the same standard by which we are judged. So James calls us to speak and act to be hearers and doers of the word who live according to the law of freedom, the same perfect royal law that defines life within God's kingdom, the kingdom that is ours by faith in Jesus, a kingdom only available to us because of the mercy and kindness of God, who, while we were still helpless, while we were lost in our sins at just the right time, sent his son Jesus into the world to live perfectly for us, to die in our place for our sins, and to rise again from the dead. His mercy to us triumphed over the judgment that was ours by virtue of our sin. And now, as people who have received such great mercy, we are called to show that mercy to others so that we all might see the beauty of the gospel at work in and through and among us. To live as those who are judged by the law of freedom, free to show God's love and mercy and kindness and compassion to everyone, no matter their history, their ethnicity, their social status, their economic status, or any other standard that falls short of God's. Because it's by God's standards by which we are measured, not our own and not any other human standard. And God has chosen the poor, the neglected, the rejected, the downtrodden to be rich in faith, heirs to his kingdom that he promised to those who love him. And so by God's grace, let's ask him for help to be and to keep being these kinds of people, to be this sort of community, one where discrimination has no place, one where all who are weary and need rest, all who mourn and long for comfort, all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, all who fail and desire strength, all who sin 
and need a savior are welcomed in love as friends and neighbors in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that because of Jesus, we are free, that we are free to be, that we are free to be free from discrimination, to love the way that you have called us to. Help us to be the kind of community that pursues this, this love for others, that pursues our neighbors with the same determination that you have pursued all of us because truthfully, you are pursuing people through us for your glory. Help us in that. Help us to be the kind of people who love our neighbors as ourselves for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.